pizza there, Bill. So we're there, and we hung out a little bit, and Ben's going, I, I think I need to go to the hotel for a little bit. And then from there, his health kind of went downhill from there. And so I'll use this microphone right now, but second service, I'll be using this microphone <laughs> right here. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, the ministry that he has is, is, is one of bringing people hope through the power of God. And, and, and I thought, man, what a, a great time of year to have him come out anyway, Thanksgiving time. And, you know, a lot of people, they get, you know, discouraged around this time of year. So uh, um, just we are, we are blessed to have him. And so uh, I got plenty of tissue and plenty of water up here. And so if you would, uh, welcome Ben Corson. I see you. It's good to see all you guys. I'm a little delirious right now, um, so I just got hit with a flu, but I'm so excited to be here, and I really believe that God has a powerful word for us today. And uh, would you turn with me in your Bible to Romans 15? I love your church. You guys have an incredible thing going on here. Um, the pastoral staff, the worship team, the servant leaders, this church creates such a culture of uh, an atmosphere, a passion and zeal for God, and it's absolutely inspiring to see. So usually I'm more energetic than this, but we'll just have fun being a little more chill today. Is that cool with you guys? So my whole message is really summed up in the word hope. The word hope is so misunderstood. A lot of people think that it's airy-fairy, happy-clappy, wishy-washy, hunky-dory, pie-in-the-sky A-OK, sunny with a high of 75, fluff, like it's unicorn shooting rainbows out of their eyes, robustly flavored donuts of fun, raining jelly beans and Skittles. So when you talk about hope today, it sounds like, oh, that's a TED Talk or a motivational speak speech or it's something that's a pick-me-up to put some pep in my step. But the fact of the matter is, hope in the Bible is much different than how we use it in our syntax and rhetoric today. When we use the word hope, we say, I hope Selena Gomez asks me on a date, but that's probably not going to happen. I hope this Hail Mary pass connects with the wide receiver, but fat chance, because it's a 99-yard play. I hope I win the lottery. I hope I get this parking spot. And the way we use the word hope is so often, um, well, goodness gracious, maybe this will work out. But the word hope in in the Bible in Greek is the word elpis. Would everyone say elpis? El peace in Greek, like when Paul talked to Titus about the hope to eternal life, for example, the word el peace means joyful. Everyone say joyful. Confident. Everyone say confident. Welcome. Everyone say welcome. So joyful, confident, welcome. Number one, it's joyful. We need more joy in the church today. The average adult laughs 14 to 17 times every day, and the average child laughs 200 to 400 times every day. Now, I'm not a rocket scientist, but it seems like the older we're getting, the less joy we're having. Maybe Jesus was onto something when he said, if you want to become great in my kingdom, if you want to enter my kingdom, you must become a little child. Paul the Apostle defined the kingdom of God as joy in the Holy Ghost. El peace, hope, the biblical word, is literally joyful. That's what it means. Joyful. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. Joy is not something that we put on the back burner. So something we say, yeah, I'll get around to that after I go after holiness or after I become more godly or after I focus on reading my Bible more, then I'll go after joy. Joy is not something that you just like throw into the deal like a cherry on top of the cake. No, this is a foundation. This is essential. This is integral. This is germane 
to your walk with God. As you walk with, talk to, live for, depend upon, lean into, follow after, and trust in the God of hope, joy is essential. The Bible says, Psalm 126, verse 3, Then was our mouth filled with laughter, for they said among the nations, The Lord hath done great things. When you laugh, you actually increase your health. The book of Proverbs says, A merry heart does good like medicine, but a broken spirit rots the bones. So I'm going to try to laugh as much as possible today. But laughing releases neuropeptides in your body, which strengthens your immune system. If you laugh a hundred times, it has the same effect on your body as being on a rowing machine for 10 minutes or a stationary bike for 15 minutes. So if you want better abs, laugh at all my jokes. I'm just saying. But I remember... Uh, we were shooting for our TV show last summer in in uh, France, and we were doing these flips off this dilapidated building into the Mediterranean Sea as my friend Cam was filming it. And uh, me and my me and my buddy Sean, we were doing these flips off this building. And uh, after I got tired, I laid on the sand, went to shore, just soaking in the sun rays. And Sean comes out of the water a few minutes later, and he's just absolutely cracking up. And I say, Sean, what's so funny? And he says, I got stung by a jellyfish. <coughs> Sorry, hold on. <coughs> and I said, Sean, like, why are you laughing? Jellyfish things can be excruciatingly painful, even lethal. And he said, well, if I have one hour left to live, I might as well enjoy the rest of my life. <laughs> He's like, I'm going to enjoy where I'm at on the way to where I'm going. <coughs> and sure enough, an hour later, he was totally okay. And the reason I think that's so cool is because Laughing really does strengthen your body. It, 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 a merry heart does good like medicine. Actually, did you know it's scientifically proven that people who laugh more live longer? Whereas depressed people get colds more frequently than non-depressed people. So I definitely need more hope today. <laughs> but, but joy, 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 El peace in the Bible is, is joyful. Jesus said, I give you a joy that no man can take from you. Why? Because on your worst day with God, you are better off than on your best day without God. And you don't have to behave to get saved. You just believe and receive. And when you're going through your worst, God is planning his best. So when your night is at its darkest, that's when your praise has to be at its loudest. Joy, joy, joy. El peace is joy. Number two, El peace is confident. The biblical word for hope, El peace, is confident. Um, my dad, uh, who's a Bible teacher himself, he said that hope is defined this way in the Bible. It's the absolute expectation of coming good. It's the looking forward to the future saving acts of God predicated upon the foundation of the salvation that God has already wrought in the past. It's saying if God's been faithful in the past, then I'm going to be faith-filled about my future and I'm going to be fulfilled today because God's never failed anyone. So by employing deploy a priori logic, it is only reasonable to assume that he's not going to start failing me now. Hope in the Bible is, is, is confident. That's what the word El Peace means, confident. Uh, when I think of somebody who has, uh, when I think of somebody who's very sure of himself, let me just put it that way, I think of Kanye West. Now Kanye West, I don't really use Twitter, I do Instagram more, but, but my friend Brighton called me when I was going through a talk about drive-thru one day, and he said, Ben, have you read Kanye West's tweets? And I said, no. I don't really do Twitter. And he said, listen to what Kanye tweeted to planet Earth. This was not to an individual. He treated this, tweeted this to the world. Kanye literally tweeted, you may be talented, but you're not Kanye West. He said, I wish I had a friend like me. He tweeted, I wish I could be in a room full of mirrors, so then I could constantly surround myself with winners. He said, I may... 
he said, I may not be tall and skinny, but I'll settle for being the greatest artist of all time as a consolation. But as confident as Kanye sounds, you know who would give Kanye a run for his Yeezys is Moses. In Numbers 12.3, it says that Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. Who wrote that? Moses. I mean, the book's attributed to Moses. So that would be like me coming to church and like, I'm the most humble guy on the planet. You're like, oh, that kind of belies and betrays its own case. But to make matters even worse, to exacerbate it, he used the third person like athletes and rappers do. So he didn't even refer to himself in the first person. He's like, Moses is the most humble man on the face of the earth. He writes autobiographically. So that makes me rethink, what is humility? Humility, maybe, is not walking around saying, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, why don't I just go eat worms? I'm such a sinner, so let me flagellate myself. The interesting thing is, the New Testament never refers to you in your present tense as a sinner. It's always in the past tense. The Bible in the present tense in the New Testament refers to you as a saint. So the most humble thing you can do is to meekly submit to whatever God speaks over your life. So if if God tells me to write, I'm the most humble guy ever, then the most humble thing I can do is obey him. Now, Moses could have said, I'm going to write, Moses is a piece of trash because that's my current mood. And a lot of people think that's godly, that's humility, to say, oh, I'm just a piece of garbage. Actually, it's the opposite. The Bible says you were created by God, so to call yourself a piece of garbage uh, doesn't compliment the one who created you. So the most humble thing you can do is confidently speak over your life what God speaks over you, just as God told Moses to write that he was the most humble man ever. In the same way, we should say, I'm the head, not the tail. I'm above, not beneath. I'm a mago day. I'm made in his likeness. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm the image of God. All my days are written in his book. I'm crowned with glory and honor, as the Psalms say. Malachi 3.17, we are God's jewels. I am his pearl of great price that the master of the kingdom would bankrupt heaven to sell everything he has to buy you his pearl of great price that he found dirty in a field, washed in the water of his word, went to the ends of the earth, even across, to prove not that he's mad at you, but he's madly in love with you. I need to speak over my life. I'm a king. I'm a priest. I'm a royal priesthood. I'm going to share a seat with Jesus on his throne. Revelation 3, as I overcome by faith, as First John tells me, I am his masterpiece created in him for good works. That's who I am. And the most humble thing you can do is speak over your life what God speaks over you. So, Number two, LPs, the biblical word for hope, is confident. We need more confidence in our generation. People who are confident about their hope. There should be no glass ceiling on your joy. There should be no glass ceiling on your hope. There should be no glass ceiling on your confidence. You shouldn't say, well, yeah, I'm pretty confident. I'm pretty joyful. I'm pretty hopeful. I'm pretty happy. The Bible says, happy are those people whose God is the Lord, whose hope is found in the God of Jacob, whose help comes from the Lord who made heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. So we shouldn't put a a limit or a a, a gauge on how much joy we're going to have everything's going to be okay in the end. So if it's not okay, it's not the end. And it's okay if we're not okay. It's just not okay if we stay that way because we are going to live happily ever after. He's going to wipe all our tears from our eyes. So we need more joy. We need more hope. We need more peace. We need more confidence. That's the biblical word for hope. And lastly, number three, the word hope in Greek is, is watch this, peace, joyful, confident, thirdly, welcome. This joyful confidence is the threshold across which we welcome all the miracles of God into our life, which leads us to our text, and I'll be brief. Romans 15, 13, as Paul writes about 
hope in a very masterful way. Can I take a quick drink of water? Will you give me one sec? Okay. Sorry. I'm going to like use this tissue. I never do this, so I just have to. Are you guys doing good so far? Okay. Here we go. <laughs> Romans 15:13 says, "Now may the God of hope, everyone say God of hope, fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul doesn't just say that our God in this text sprinkles on you a little Jesus joy, calm delight, sacred optimism, or holy happiness. Paul says inextricably intertwined to fundamental ultimate reality is this moniker and sobriquet with which he dubs God. He says, God is the God of hope. He embodies hope. He personifies hope. And the reason this is so important is because we live in a largely hopeless generation. Did you know that our generation has now gone down as the number one most depressed generation in recorded history? One of the reasons for that is because of social media is what the data is telling us. But also, we consume more pills due to anxiety and depression than the rest of the earth combined by three times over as Americans. Antidepressants are the number one best-selling prescribed pharmaceutical medication in a nation built on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness where stress, depressed, distressed, and in debt trillion, a trillion dollars to China. We live in a generation where suicide is one of the top ten leading causes of death. A person commits suicide once every 40 seconds. And the reason I'm so passionate about hope is because right now our generation is the mope generation, but Aslan's on the move. Further up, further in, up into the right, we're going to change our generation from a mope generation to a hope generation. I'm very passionate about that. It's not just a tagline. If it's the last thing I do, I'm going to fight with my dying breath for hope. This generation needs hope. And the reason I'm so passionate about it is because I myself went through 10 years of chronic depression. I went through a crazy heartbreak a couple years ago. My brother almost died a few times due to brain tumors. My dad's first wife died in a car accident. My sister died in a car accident. You go through things in life that you feel like there's no way you'll ever find hope again. But Psalm 56 says that the Lord collects all of our tears in his bottle. That's what it says. The Lord collects all of our tears in his bottle. Our tears are not lost on God. They are caught by God. Now, in ancient Jewish culture, what would happen is Hebrew women, one of their most precious possessions was their tear bottle. And your tears of sadness and your tears of gladness, you would collect in your tear bottle and then you would give it to your husband when you got married. Thereby saying, I give you all of my heart. Interesting, in all four Gospels, we're told the story of a woman who washed Jesus' feet with her hair, her perfume, and with her tears. One scholar suggests, that scholar being my dad, that that what she was doing is she was pouring her tear bottle on Jesus' feet, thereby saying, I am the bride of Christ, and I give you all my heart. Just as a woman would give her tear bottle to her husband in ancient Jewish culture and Old Testament times, so too that woman who was washing Jesus' feet with her tears may well have been pouring her tear bottle on Jesus' feet, symbolically saying, I'm the bride of Christ, here's my heart and you'll take really good care of it. God takes really good care of your heart when you trust it to him. 
900 times the Bible speaks of your heart as the sum, the seat, the center of who you are, the nexus of your emotional existence. In fact, the phrase a broken heart traces the genesis of its origins back to ancient Hebrew biblical literature. In other words, the Bible invented the phrase a broken heart. The first time in history we ever saw the phrase a broken heart used was by the Bible. And the author of this book who invented the phrase a broken heart can also be the finisher of your faith and heal it. The Bible says he is near to the brokenhearted and bindeth up their wounds. The Bible says he healeth the brokenhearted and saveth such as be of a crushed spirit. Jesus said in Luke 4.18, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me to heal brokenhearted people. He is in the business of putting our broken hearts back together. He applied the healing balm of Gilead. He is a God who is, the Bible says, the dispenser of all hope. He embodies hope. He personifies hope. He's so good. And even in life, when you feel like your heart has been broken, you've been cursed, he can do a curse, reverse, and turn it into a blessing. There's this incredible story in the New Testament of Jesus sweating great drops of blood from his pores when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane just before he was uh, to be crucified. Now, the book of Romans says that Jesus is the last Adam. Now, it's interesting because the first Adam was expelled from the garden to work by the sweat of his brow, and that was his curse. So Jesus, the last Adam, goes back into the garden, the garden of Gethsemane, and he bleeds from the sweat of his brow to reverse the curse and redeem man's work. So Adam, again, was expelled. Sorry, my nose is dripping. Hold on. There that goes. I am a mess today. I'm so sorry. Adam was expelled from the garden and his curse was to work by the sweat of his brow. So Romans 5.1 says Jesus' blood symbolizes redemption. And the last Adam, the first place he bled, was from the sweat of his brow in the garden to reverse Adam's curse and redeem man's work. He's amazing how he, the God of hope, can take our curse and do a curse reverse. And as Nehemiah says, turn the curse into a blessing. He's the God of hope. And notice what our text goes on to say. Look down at Romans 15.13 again. It says, now the God of hope fill you. With all joy and peace and believing. Joy and peace in Greek is Irene and Kara. These became popular names in the early church. So if you know an Irene or a Kara, you can say, hey, joy, hey, peace. And you're actually being technically accurate. The word peace appears 80 times in the New Testament altogether. It's actually used by every single New Testament author. Peace, joy and peace. He wants to fill you. You know what drives me bonkers? Is when people ask me if I'm like an introvert or an extrovert, an optimist or a pessimist, a glass half empty or glass half full kind of person. And the reason this drives me crazy is because these are all constructs made up by psychiatrists. In fact, even the word personality was made up by psychiatrists. So introvert and extrovert was made up in the 1900s in the 20th century by C.G. Jung, who wrote a book and uh, coined this man's search for a soul, uh, ultimately pigeonholing us into these two construct boxes. You're either an introvert or an extrovert. Uh, or you're either an optimist or a pessimist. You're either glass half empty or glass half full. But me, I like to say, actually, I'm a God-fitting hope-trovert. I'm just going to make up my own thing then. Because like, people are making stuff up. Ultimately, like I'm not a glass half empty pessimist or a glass half full kind of optimist. I'm a glass totally full. My cup runneth over, like David said. He fills me with all joy and peace and believing. 
Like, if we're going to be hopeful, it's not just like, oh, well, we'll have a little vanilla hope. Vanilla never changed the world. As the Navy SEALs say, anything worth doing is worth overdoing. Like, if this is pessimism and this is optimism, I'm way over there. Like, I'm an absurd, God-finded, hope-trovert, insane optimist. Winston Churchill said, I dare say I'm an optimist. It does not seem too much use being anything else. Like, really? You're going to go through life as a pessimist? Then why do you wake up in the morning? I have never understood that. So you might as well say, no, he's the God of hope and he's going to fill me with joy and peace that I may abound in hope. That's what Paul goes on to say. Abounding in hope. Abounding in hope. That's how God has called us to live. And the amazing thing is, this hope that he gives us, the Bible says it's, it's connected to love because love, 1 Corinthians 13, love hopes all things. So when you're talking about the love of God, God loves you so much that in, in, in your life, not only do you put your hope in him, but love hopes all things. God is love, so God hopes all things in you. Amazing stuff. So God has more hope for your future than you probably do for yourself. And God's saying, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Come up with me to my thoughts. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind hath conceived, nor has it entered the heart of man, Paul and Isaiah said respectively, what the Lord has in store for those who love him. Habakkuk and Romans says, if, if you knew what I had planned for your future, you would not believe it, though it were told you. So God's saying, I, I, if, if I don't meet your expectations, it's because if I always met your expectations, how could I exceed them? I'm able to do exceeding abundantly above all you could ever ask or even think. Hope, hope, hope. We need more hope. Like, but I'm already a pretty hopeful person. We'll be more hopeful. We need more joy, more hope. This is huge. I believe this is what's going to change the world. It's not just going to be fun changing the world. Fun is the very thing that will be changing the world itself. Like, our generation has lost fun. We're so depressed. But Jesus puts the fun back in funeral. He puts the fun back in fundamental. And he causes the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the mute to speak, the dead to raise. I mean... Speaks hope to weary souls. He, 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 he's a hope dealer. We have enough dope dealers in the world. We need some more hope dealers. <clears throat> and God loves you so much. Here's the thing. You don't even have to do anything to get hope. There's this story that I've been thinking about in John 9 where Jesus healed a blind man on the Sabbath by making clay when he spit in the ground. And he put the clay in the guy's eyes and the guy washed in the pool of Siloam, which means sent because Hezekiah's tunnel sent the waters into the city during siege. And he was able to see. Now, the reason I think that's fascinating is because, um, number one, he healed the guy with his spit. Back then, they believed that spit could heal diseases. Like, what's the first thing you do if you burn your finger or you cut your finger? You like put, put it in your mouth. You put spit on it. Uh, the Roman historian Tacitus talks about how the emperor Vespasian healed a, an infirm person with his spit. So that's what they believed back then. Like, spit could heal people. If that were true, like, I'd heal the front row every time I preached. But I see everybody avoided the front row right here. <coughs> not, a, not a bad idea. <coughs> but ultimately, Jesus made clay with his spit to heal the guy's eyes. He did this on the Sabbath. Why? You were not allowed to make clay on the Sabbath. That was considered work. What had the Israelites done for 400 years with no Sabbath? They made clay to build Pharaoh's pyramids. You weren't allowed to make clay on the Sabbath. That was like your Egyptian bondage when you had to build Pharaoh's pyramid with no day off. So Jesus on the Sabbath makes clay 
So the man doesn't have to. And what he's saying, in effect, is let me make clay as the Lord of the Sabbath on the Sabbath, even though it's illegal. Because what I'm saying is, if you let me work, you can rest. But if you do all the work, I'm going to take my hands off and rest. You relax and sit back because every setback is a setup for a comeback. Let me do all the work for you. (laughs) Come on, that's pretty sick. (laughs) Ultimately, he's saying, let me do all the work for you. Philippians 1.6 says, He who has begun a good work and you will be faithful to finish it. Did you know that word finish in Greek is telestai? That Paul used in Philippians 1.6 is the same word Jesus used on the cross when he said, Te telestai, it is finished. In other words, as surely as Jesus carried his cross to telestai, it is finished. So too Paul says, hijacking that word, The Father has begun a good work and you will be faithful to telestai to finish it. But if you work, God will rest. But if you rest, God will work. Enter into the rest. Enjoy the joy of being enjoyed by God. That's the meaning of life. Since we're here, we might as well talk about the meaning of life. Enjoy the joy of being enjoyed by God. You rest. I'll work. You need not fight this battle. The battle is the Lord's. And when you listen, when you understand that to get hope and to receive the love of God, which hopes all things, you don't even have to do anything. You just receive it. Thank you, God. Yay, God. Woohoo! It's finished. He didn't say, it's almost done. But here's a few things left for you to do. He said, it's done. I have finished the work you've given me to do, John 17. So ultimately, when you pray to a God you believe is loving, you have high activity in your prefrontal cortex, brain scans have shown us, which is the part of your brain responsible for decision-making, agency, consciousness, and creative thinking. And you also have higher activity in your interior cingulate cortex, brain scans have shown us. This is called neurotheology. When you pray to a God you believe is loving, you have better uh, fellow feeling for your fellow featherless bipeds. And like you actually have more empathy and compassion for other people because it's hard to put someone on your hit list who you put on your prayer list. But if, however, you pray to a God you believe is angry at you, you'll have high activity in your amygdala, which is the lizard part of your brain, the part of your brain that's responsible for fear, anger, stress, and high blood pressure. That was a bunch of fancy neuroplasticity language to just say this. If you pray to a loving God, it actually changes your brain and you become more focused. You have greater concentration. You have greater empathy, greater compassion and greater creative predispositions. All because you believe, wow, God, you are not against me. You are for me. You love me. I'll close with this. When I was in eighth grade, I played basketball for this team called the South Medford Generals. And I didn't have a whole lot of hope because I turned, I actually scored for the wrong team the first play of the season. (laughs) Like I've talked to people who've shot for the wrong team. I actually scored for the wrong team the first play of the season. And at the end of the season, against all odds, we won the championship game against our rival North Medford. But let me tell you, it wasn't because I was good. We didn't win the championship because I helped my team. The only reason we were champions well, it wasn't because of me. I made it harder for my team to win. I gave the other team points. The only reason we were champions is because we had this kid on our team named Kyle Singler. Now, Kyle went on to play for Duke University, became Final Four Player of the Year, got drafted to the Detroit Pistons, and last year made $4.5 million playing for the OKC Thunder in the NBA. He was on my team. So, true story. I remember I ran into my coach as an adult and I said, Hey, wasn't it great when we had Kyle on our team back in middle school? He said, Oh yeah. Our entire game strategy was just give the ball to Kyle. 
Like, Ben, when you get the rock, you make it harder for us to win. You give the other team points. You dribble the ball off your feet. You turn it over. But if you will put all the focus on Kyle, you are more than a conqueror through Kyle Singler overcomes North Medford. So here's, like, the God of hope. He's, like, totally faithful, totally good. In him there is light, no darkness at all. He's not like Kylo Ren. He doesn't have a dark side. He's perfect in all his ways. He's the personification of hope. He's, like, crossing the enemy over. He's all wet, splashing his jump shots. He's dunking on people's faces. And I'm like, can I be on your team? He says, what shall we conclude from these things? If I be for you, who can be against you? So that's why we have hope, not because of who we are, but because of who we belong to. Not because of who we are, but because of whose we are. So ultimately, we're going to go through life saying, I'm going to have a checkup from the neck up, get rid of stinking thinking, have an attitude of gratitude. I'm going to let him make clay on the Sabbath so I don't have to be uh, succumbing to the slave driver Pharaoh anymore. I'm going to let him reverse the curse, bleeding from the sweat of his brow just as the first Adam did in the garden to reverse the curse. I'm going to let him collect all my tears in his bottle and I'm going to give my tears to him knowing that I'm the bride of Christ. He will take such good care of me. I'm going to let him take care of and heal my broken heart. I'm going to have a checkup from the neck up, get rid of stinking thinking, have an attitude of gratitude because just because bad things are happening around me does not mean they need to be happening inside me. I can't control what happens to me, but I can control what comes through me. God doesn't do anything to me. He only does things for me. And if God's going to do something for me, he's first got to do something in me. So I'm not going to look down and give up. I'm going to look up and get up because Jesus rose so I could rise. He's the God of all hope. So we're not going to look down and get distressed. We're not going to look around and get stressed. We're not going to look inside and get depressed. We're going to look up and get blessed because we are too blessed to be stressed. Come on. He's so good. And our hope will not be dictated by our circumstances. Our circumstances will be dictated by our hope. Since we're on this planet, we might as well change it. Like If we're here, let's just change the world. Why not? When your feet hit the ground in the morning, the devil's like, oh shoot, he's awake. We used to be scared of the dark, but now the dark is scared of us. Can I get an amen? Let's pray together. Lord, you're so good. We love you. We love you. We love you. Because you first loved us. Thank you that your love hopes all things. That even when it feels like we're at our rope's end, we are never, never at our hope's end. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me?